Amen. All right, as we continue this evening in our study through the book of Psalms, we'll be in Psalm 22 this evening where we left off Psalm 22. And as you're turning there, um, certainly all of the Psalms, this is applicable, but I think particularly as we look at Psalm 22, which uh, it's very difficult to read Psalm 22 and to not uh, all throughout the Psalm plain as day be able to see the references to Christ and to the sufferings of Christ. But in light of that, I just want to read to you uh, from Luke 24 as we look into the psalm. Jesus said this in Luke 24. This was on the other side of his resurrection, one of his appearances when he appeared, uh, when he appeared, excuse me, in his glorified form before he ascended into heaven. It tells us that Jesus, when he was there on the shores discussing some things with a few of his disciples over a meal, that Jesus said this, Luke 24, verse 44. He said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, listen to what he says, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So as Jesus refers to the Old Testament scriptures, he refers to that which was written, he says, in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law of Moses. He refers to the prophets, that is all the prophetic books of the Old Testament, major and minor prophets, as well as the Psalms, which we're studying through right now, the Psalms. And he says, these things were written, Jesus said, that is God who was standing there in human flesh among them. Jesus said, these things were written and must be fulfilled, and they were written concerning me. In other words, Jesus gave this very clear indication, this direct reference, that throughout the Old Testament, whether it's the books of the law whether it's the prophetic books, whether it's the Psalms, that these things by the Spirit of God were foremost written concerning him. That is to reveal to us the life of Christ, the person of Christ, the ministry of Jesus, what he would accomplish when he came as the Messiah and as the Son of God. In fact, earlier in the same chapter when Jesus is walking on the Emmaus Road, it tells us the beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So very important that we recognize when we go through the Old Testament accounts, no matter what part of the Old Testament we're in, are we looking at literal events? Are we looking at things that were actually happening? Absolutely. However, by the Spirit of God, there also was a direct purposeful revelation in these things to point to Christ to reveal things about Jesus, whether it's his nature, his person, whether it was to reveal things about the works he would accomplish, the miracles he would do, or his redemptive acts. It is his suffering, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, all those things. And I bring that to your attention because Psalm 22 is definitely one of those psalms that kind of like an Isaiah 53 passage speaks in a very direct and picturesque way of the sufferings of Jesus. And what's beautiful to think about is as David writes Psalm 22, it's very obvious he's being used in a prophetic voice here as the Holy Spirit is directing his words. 
to some degree, David's describing, no doubt, his own experiences. He's writing these things in the first person, in a personal sense. He's writing these things. But I'm absolutely convinced that as David's writing down these things, that there are things the Spirit of God is putting on his heart and mind that he is saying, that probably he's also going, I have no idea why I'm saying this, other than that I sense this is what the Holy Spirit is putting into my mind these thoughts, these impressions, as he's communicating those things. Much the same way, I think, in a sense, that there are times when when we're honestly being just humble and not seeking glory before the Lord. I think this a lot of times is how this, the spiritual gifts are manifested through our lives. I think there are times when we are just communicating whether it's in a conversational sense with another Christian or maybe we're letting God use our life in some way and the Holy Spirit is impressing things on our minds, on our hearts. He's putting words on our tongue and we are saying things. And there are times, sometimes you clearly sense it's from the Spirit of the Lord. And yet I think there are other times when we're speaking and the Spirit of God is powerfully communicating something through us to another person and we're completely oblivious as to why we're saying that or exactly the way that we're actually being used. And I kind of sense that's what's happening with David here. If David had any idea, can you imagine? I mean, how picturesque his statements were here and that they were prophetic in such a direct way to what Christ was going to go through in his sufferings. I mean, just must have been an incredible thing for him when he got into glory and, and, and to realize how God was using him in degrees that he didn't even recognize. And of course, we read these things on the other side of the lens of the New Testament, and, and we see very directly how they speak of things again. But keep in mind, these things were written a thousand years before Christ. So how beautiful to recognize that the God who is the eternal God, he is the beginning and the end. He doesn't just know the beginning and the end, Right. We say God knows the beginning, God knows the end. Well, that, that's really not what the Bible says. The Bible says God is the beginning, and he is the end. That is, he spans time and eternity. He's outside of the time wrong. He was the beginning, and he is the end. He encompasses all of that. And so here's God a thousand years before historical events would take place, speaking about things a thousand years in advance with such specificity and clarity of exactly what kind of things were going to take place. Statements that Jesus would make as he was suffering on the cross. Comments people would make about him as he was there in the midst of his suffering. So again, this messianic psalm here, Psalm 22, a thousand years, understand, before Christ ever came, these things were recorded, and prophetically they speak very specifically, just confirming that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah, and this wasn't an accident. This was a God-ordained thing, everything that Jesus of Nazareth went through because he was God in the flesh, the, the sent Messiah that we were waiting for. The psalm begins with David here expressing a sense of, if you would, confusion and, and, and heartache, not understanding what's going on. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I am not silent. So David here is expressing 
how to him in this particular situation he was going through, he felt like day and night he was crying out to God. He was asking for God's help. He was going through very difficult times, whatever they may have been. And he felt as if God had forsaken him. Sometimes we feel that. And I emphasize the word feel that because it may be what we feel, but it's not necessarily what's factual. You know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that God's presence is always with us and all the more is his children. The Bible says in Psalm 139, under the inspiration of the spirit, the psalmist says there, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? We from time to time may not sense the presence of God, but it doesn't mean that God has abandoned us or that we've been forsaken. God says in his word, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But we would all have to be honest that there are times in our lives where maybe we feel dry spiritually or maybe we're just in a real hardship and we kind of lose sense of the presence of God and we feel like, God, I just feel like you've forsaken me. I don't feel like your help is available. What, what's going on? I feel like you're not hearing or answering my prayers. And David was going through one of these times. And as he expresses this, as he articulates his words, he says in verse one there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You notice, I don't understand. God, why would you forsake me? And I think the emphasis there could also be so much more even upon the word you. Why have you forsaken me? In other words, God, I can understand why this person would forsake me. God, I can understand why they might forsake me because people are imperfect. And quite honestly, a lot of times as people, we're not always as loyal as we ought to be. We're not always as faithful and reliable. And so whether it's somebody who just didn't follow through and let us down or whether it's somebody who completely hurt us or abandoned us, from time to time, people forsake us. But God, you, why would you forsake me? You're God. It feels like it's so strange. Why would you forsake me? And as David is expressing this, he has absolutely, I believe, to some degree, as I said, no awareness that he's actually articulating words that would be the very statements of Jesus. One of the seven statements that Christ made from the cross was this very question where Jesus, living as a man, God in flesh, experiencing humanity on the cross, suffering going through what he was, it tells us during those hours of darkness as he was there upon the cross, he uttered these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, I don't think any person in human reason or in human words can fully grasp and understand what was happening between Jesus, the son of God and the heavenly father, this if it were to some degree, I hate to even use the term, it's like a delicate ground you want to walk on, this breach, this separation, this momentary forsaking in some way as the father to some degree turned away his face and his favor from the son in that moment where Jesus on the cross, remember the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So in some way is Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, Jesus 
who lived as a man fulfilled the sinless requirement that mankind must fulfill if they're to have access into heaven, which we could never do on our own. But Jesus satisfying the righteous requirement of the law, Bible says, that he also became the sin offering for all of humanity so that God could fire down his just and righteous judgment in a just and holy and righteous way. Sin had to be punished. Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. So imagine, in that moment, there was a transaction, an eternal transaction that had to happen when Christ was suffering and dying on the cross, where all of the sin of my entire life, all of the cumulative sin of everything I have done wrong, am doing wrong, and will do wrong from my first breath to my dying breath, and then all of yours... And then the sin of the entire human race, not just on earth now, but from the first breath of Adam to the last breath of the person on this earth when the culmination of all things come to pass and Christ returns. The sin of the whole world of all human history was all being put upon the innocent, sinless, guiltless son of God, Jesus, as a man And in that moment, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And the Father in heaven fired down the judgment of the wrath of God to punish the sin of the world. And as Jesus was experiencing that in some way, this perfect harmony, unity, everything that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit experience in this oneness of the Trinity, something happened there. Some divine separation some moment where as jesus became sin the father and as his wrath was poured out turned away because again sin causes separation where it caused christ to cry out from the cross in a way something i get i don't think we'll ever fully be able to grasp what transpired he said my god my god why have you forsaken me now the beautiful thing very honestly is this To a degree, Jesus was forced to experience that and cry that to his heavenly father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to make that cry. Jesus experienced all he experienced and even that degree of, if it were, if you could use the term, a momentary separation from his father and his God, he experienced that so that we wouldn't have to experience that so that we could have ongoing unity and fellowship through Christ and we would never have to be forsaken by God, that God would never turn away from us, but that we would be accepted in the beloved as the Bible speaks about through the righteousness of Christ and by his grace and through our faith in his finished work. So here David makes this statement, Christ utters it from the cross. Verse three, he says, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of, of Israel. Again, perhaps one of the reasons why there was this momentary breach or separation as Christ became sin and because God is utterly holy, completely holy. And again, as we said before, the word holy just simply means to, to be set apart, to be wholesome, completely whole, the idea is nothing lacking. And so when the word holy is used of God, it speaks of how God is set apart. He's unique. He's completely wholesome that in him is light and there's there's no darkness at all in him. He's completely holy. He's distinct and separate. There is God and there's everything else. And so this is what makes God holy in the sense of not just morally pure, 
but completely distinct and whole, unlike us as people who are broken and fractured. So he says, you are holy, sinless, wholesome, complete. And then I love the the, the term there in verse 3, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Notice, the praises of Israel, that is the worship, the exaltation of the people of God from Israel. It says that God is enthroned by that. What a beautiful description, a picturesque way of, of what our praises provide for the Lord. They provide a way to enthrone the Lord. That is, as we come together, as we praise the Lord collectively, even as the congregation of Israel praise the Lord collectively, in some way, spiritually, we're enthroning God. As we worship the Lord and we praise the Lord, we're enthroning him, his authority, his rulership over us. We're saying, Lord, we surrender. We don't want to be in charge. We want to enthrone you. You're the king. You're in control. And and Lord, by our praise of you, no matter what we're going through, we are praising you. And in such a way, it says he's enthroned by that. The idea is he's exalted. He's lifted up. He's honored in his rightful place, as we start to render praise to him, he becomes enthroned in the praises of his people. He says, verse four, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So as they sought God for help, God brought about deliverance. Now, as we come to verse six, again, we come back to this very clear descriptive language of what Christ was experiencing in his humanity as he was suffering and ultimately being put to death through crucifixion. Look what he says, verse six, but I am a worm and no man. The idea is I'm lower than a man. I'm not even being treated like a man. I'm being looked upon and treated as if I'm just a worm a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. The idea is in mockery. They shake their heads saying, verse eight, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So verse six David, again, speaking of how he feels, but no doubt we see behind this, again, a a testament to really what was going on with Jesus and his humanity. He says here, I'm not even being treated like a man. I'm being treated like I'm less than a man. He says, I'm a worm and no man as I'm reproached and despised and ridiculed by the people. Now, Again, if you think about a, a worm, right? I mean, p- people don't really highly value worms. P- people don't even recognize worms. When's the last time you went outside and, well, check out that worm. That's an awesome worm, right? People don't, people don't recognize worms. They don't acknowledge worms. Usually you probably just step on worms, right? Or, or you use a worm for what? A sacrificial purpose if you're a fisherman, right? I mean, you... Worms have no intrinsic value to them, to us. They're nothing that we're impressed by. And it's interesting that that Jesus is saying, this is what I, as the son of God, was being treated like, not even like a man, less than a man. I was like a worm to people. I was overlooked and despised and ridiculed and, and people trampled over me and didn't even see any value to my life. What's very beautiful, you don't see it, of course, in the English language, but in verse six, where 
he says here, I am a worm. It's actually the Hebrew uh, term toleoth, which actually was a type of worm that was used. Actually, it was crushed. And when you would crush that particular type of worm, it would actually produce a red or a scarlet dye. How fitting is that, that the Holy Spirit of all the terms? So that term is translated at times worm. Other times that Hebrew term toleath is actually translated scarlet or red because it's a reference to a particular type of species of worm that they actually would use to make royal garments by crushing that worm and a red or scarlet fluid would come out of it and they would use it to dye clothes to make royal garments. And how fitting, because you had to crush that, cr that creature, that worm, to get the red dye to come out, and it would therefore stain clothing. And, and when Christ was crushed, when he was treated like a worm and then crushed in his sufferings, the precious blood of Christ, the scarlet blood of Christ came forth. And the wonderful thing is that blood is what provides the forgiveness of our sins. It cleanses us, that scarlet blood of Christ as a result of his being crushed but again jesus here was like david's describing he was reproached he was despised and rejected isaiah 53 tells us that same language and people ridiculed him verse 7 and 8 describe exactly what happened in matthew chapter 27 as christ was upon the cross how people mocked him and were ridiculing him he says here that they were saying to him he trusted in the lord he trusted in yahweh let yahweh rescue him and deliver him since he delights in him the bible tells us in matthew chapter 27 that they were mocking Jesus as he was upon the cross. It says those who passed by him blaspheme, wagging their heads, saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking the scribes and the elders said, he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Verse 43 of Matthew 27, he trusted in God. Let God deliver him now. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So again, prophetically, these very words from a thousand years previously were actually being spoken by the mouths of people who they weren't quoting Psalm 22 to bless Jesus on the cross. What was happening is God, a thousand years before an event happened, said, I am God, and to prove I'm God, I can tell you now under the inspiration of the Spirit through David's words, I can tell you a thousand years in advance what people will be saying when the Son of God and the Messiah is hanging on the cross, being ridiculed and reviled like a worm, and not even being treated like a man, but being crushed and trampled and despised like a despicable worm, people are going to be saying this. And what happened a thousand years later, perfectly God predicted exactly what people were saying. The very things are recorded in Matthew that were described a thousand years previously from Psalm 22, verifying again that Jesus was exactly who he was. Verse nine, he says, but you who took me, or who took me out of the womb and you made me trust, he says, while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. So be not far from me, he says, 
for trouble is near and there is none to help. Now, verses 9, 10, and 11 here refer to how Jesus, as a man, lived and had to learn how to live in full dependency upon his Father in heaven as his God. This is what this is describing. Again, Jesus, who actually took upon himself human flesh and lived as a man, just like a child has to live in full dependency from the womb upon their mother, for nourishment and care, and a child is very needy, right? They're very dependent. They don't have the strength and the ability to take care of themselves. They have to live in dependency. This is what he's describing. He says here, God, you, you forced me from the moment of my birth to have to live in a dependent state. It refers to the humility of Jesus. That being fully man, he had to live in this state of dependency, not just upon his mother, but he had to live in dependency upon the father in heaven as his God, like any other man. And he says, so therefore help me. He says, trouble is near and there's none to help. That is no person was able to help Christ. He had to live in dependency upon his father in heaven. He says, verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. So he just pictures these, you know, bulls surrounding him, raging and roaring like vicious animals. Again, perhaps not only describing the human experience of people ridiculing and mocking Jesus, but I believe perhaps verse 12 and 13, even referring to the attack in the demonic and spiritual realm that was going on, that these demonic evil spirits, can you imagine the, the things that were being conveyed to try and discourage Christ as he hung upon the cross. And not just the physical sufferings, not just the physical mockery, but no doubt in the realm of the spirit, the things that were being you know, conveyed to him by demons and dark spirits in that time as he is suffering as a man enduring those things upon the cross. And perhaps some of this is a picturesque way poetically of describing the that those who surrounded him that were encircling him, gaping at him with their mouths and raging and roaring like a lion. Verse 14, he describes some of the physical sufferings of the crucifixion. He says, I am poured out like water. Again, his life being poured out unto death. All my bones are out of joint. And we know scientifically from American medical journals and others who've done research on crucifixion, how the actual bones and body begin to go out of joint from the weight sagging over time uh, when the body is, is crucified and left in that condition. He says, my heart is like wax, that is the inward person just weakening inwardly. It is melted within me. He says, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. The idea there is speaking of tremendous thirst and dehydration which is, again, a very common part of the suffering in crucifixion. The body begins to dehydrate. The mouth becomes dry. He says, you have brought me to the dust of death. Again, remember one of the other statements of Christ, it tells us is that he said, I thirst. And they lifted up to him the sponge, remember, that was doused with 
wine vinegar, which basically was a a, a painkiller, a way to help diminish some of the pain and suffering of the person being crucified, as well as to wet their mouth because it was difficult. If you've ever gone through severe dehydration, you know your tongue dries out and you, you kind of struggle to get words out. So again, just describing the dehydration, the pain and the sufferings of Jesus in the midst of his crucifixion. Verse 16, he says, for dogs have surrounded me. Again, this is the idea again of uh, people around him just attacking him verbally, mocking him, just adding insult to his injury. I mean, imagine already being in that condition and then on top of it, people surrounding you and saying hurtful things. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me and stare at me and they divide garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So again, verse 16, notice the Old Testament, a thousand years before Christ, listen, and centuries, literally centuries before the Persians invented crucifixion as a form of torture and capital punishment and then the Romans perfected crucifixion the romans didn't uh, uh, you know invent crucifixion they just perfected crucifixion because they were torture artists the iron fist of rome but a thousand years before the life of christ and hundreds of years before the art of crucifixion was even invented in the crazy ideas of men of how to put someone to death in a very torturous way what does the bible speak of in a picturesque way they pierced my hands and my feet. A, a very direct description of exactly how Jesus would die by being pierced with a nail through his hands and through his feet in crucifixion. Again, pointing to the sufferings of Christ and confirming exactly how he would be put to death. That he would be put to death, not according to the typical way a Jew would normally put to death someone for blasphemy. Because what was typically the way that the Jewish people put to death people? Stoning, right. So when Jesus committed in their minds blasphemy, you would think that a Jew would be put to death by stoning. But Jesus was put to death by crucifixion because he was fulfilling prophecy and because the Holy Spirit distinctively singled out thousand years ahead of time exactly how he would die why because god didn't want people to not be able to identify the messiah god wanted people to be able to see yes that has got to be the messiah because a thousand years before he ever came god said specific things about him again over 300 prophecies in the old testament the jewish bible the old testament in advance spoke Hundreds, thousands of years before the Messiah would come, these were things that he would do. And, and categorically, Jesus fulfilled all those things. But yet, sadly, because of a lack of knowledge of the scripture, people failed to recognize Christ. Uh, and for those of us who know and love and follow Christ, we have the encouragement that, yes, look at the validation. No question who we were trusting is, is the right person. This indeed is the Son of God and the Messiah because it spoke 
here of his pierced hands and feet in crucifixion. Verse 18 describes as well how they did exactly what Matthew's gospel and the others describe. Remember, they began to divide his garments, the soldiers around the foot of the cross. They would. This was part of their pay. They would take the garments and possessions of those who were being put to death. But you, he says, verse 19, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. So again, David crying out to God for help, but as well, no doubt Jesus in his humanity crying out, communicating with his father as he's suffering in the midst of his crucifixion. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and the horns of the wild ox. And again, save me from the lion's mouth. Is Jesus there referring to perhaps the, the, the very direct lying voice of the devil as he's suffering on the cross? The, the, the lion, the Bible speaks of, uh, in First Peter, of the devil as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I don't question at all that the devil, no doubt, was trying to verbally assault and, and discourage and, and beat Jesus up even as he was suffering greatly. And here it seems this description of, of crying out to, to God for help, for strength in the midst of a time of great suffering. Now, the end of verse 21, notice the tone of the psalm changes because now he says, you have answered me. So he's suffering, 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 crying, asking for help. And then he says, and you have answered me. And now verse 22, the psalm changes to a tone of triumph. Why? Because verses 1 through 21, I think, speak of the sufferings, the crucifixion, and the death of Christ. But something happened beyond that. It's called victorious resurrection. And I think now as the psalmist comes to verse 22, he speaks uh, in this change of triumph because now he's describing the resurrection of Christ, that the Father did answer. And the way the Father answered when Jesus said, it is finished, the Father said, amen. And do you know how he said amen? He raised Christ from the dead. <laughs> that was how God does an amen. Jesus said, it's finished. The Father said, Amen. Resurrection. And answers his prayer and triumphantly raises him back from the dead. He says, verse 22, because notice the change now, I will declare your name to my brethren. Now it's becoming celebratory. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, he says, you join in, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. So he says, God, you didn't disregard my affliction. When you saw my affliction, you didn't abhor it. You didn't despise it. Men may have been abhorring me and despising me and saying, look at that horrific sight, this you know, man, he's a blasphemer, this carpenter of Nazareth, and, and, and he claimed to be God. If he was the son of God, why? and he says, men were ridiculing me and despising me, but he said, Lord, you didn't despise my affliction, and you didn't hide your face from me, but when I cried, you heard, you answered. My Verse 25, he says, therefore, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. Again, the, the idea here is just celebrating God. You came through, you answered, you triumphed 
on my behalf. So therefore, when you triumph, the way you return back to God, in a sense, payback is you praise God. I mean, what are you going to give God back? What are you going to, you going to pay God something? Lord, I want to really thank you for your great service and what you did to me. Well, God doesn't need anything, but you know what God wants? Praise. God wants us to praise him. So he says, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. That's what I'll do. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied and those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Now, let me point something out, which is, you know, something for consideration. The one statement from Jesus that comes from the cross that in essence is the question and the question that seems unanswered is given to us in verse one of our psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in some way, it's fair for us to say that's never answered. Like Jesus makes that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's almost as if, where's the answer for that? Where's the answer from heaven to Jesus's question from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in this moment as I'm dying here on the cross? Well, perhaps the reason is that the answer by the Holy Spirit is given to us at the very end of this psalm that perhaps verse 27 through 31 is the answer to why God forsook Christ in that moment upon the cross. Why, verse 1? So that all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. That's why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer, the Holy Spirit gives it to us. So that all the ends of the world could remember what Christ experienced and that they would be able to turn to the Lord. So they could turn to the Lord in salvation because of what Christ accomplished between himself and his father. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. So that he can come back as a conquering king in his second coming and triumphantly rule over all the nations. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 29, so that all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship and those who go down to the dust shall bow before him at the name of Jesus. Every what? Knee shall bow and tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 30, so that a posterity, that is a seed, a remnant, a seed, shall serve him. And it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? This suffering on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Well, the reason is so that a remnant, a seed of people on the earth would serve Jesus, would serve him and say, that is my crucified savior. That is my redeemed, risen, glorified Lord. And I will serve him because of what he did for me. That's why the father allowed the son to go through what he did so that people would turn and serve Christ. And so also why? So that it could be recounted of 
the Lord, Adonai, the Savior, the ruler, to the next generation, and so that people could come and declare his righteousness to a people who will yet be born. So that generation after generation, people could convey to the next generation who would be born, listen, there is a great problem and plague for all of humanity. We are great sinners. But there is a very real, credible solution God has provided. And that is God has sent a Savior. And we don't have to question if that Savior was truly a credible, reliable, legitimate Savior who can forgive our sins and can give us access into heaven and who can give to us his, verse 31, his righteousness in exchange for our sin because we know because the word of God told us things about him a thousand years before he came, what he would do specifically hundreds of years before he came, things that he would do, where he would be born, what his life would be about. With incredible credibility, we can have full reliance. It's true. It's true that he has done this, that he's provided salvation for us and that we can hang our, our, you know, our, our full reliance upon that assurance and know that our sins are forgiven, that heaven is real, and that the one that we are following is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that we can know that it's well with our soul, that no matter what goes on in this crazy life, that the gospel message is real, right? You know, and as we live in a world that we live in with constant unsurety and this and that or whatever, isn't it really nice to have something of credibility? I, I, I mean, every time we watch the news again, right? It's a change of this, it's a change of that rule. It's a change of this, it's a change of that. You know, I mean, I'm sure you had to, if you or just glance on the news, see the recent articles, you know, we, now this, now that, now this, now that. I mean, all the back and forth, this one, that. Nothing seems to have much credibility. But I can tell you this, what you're holding in your lap or looking at on your iPhone, if you've got an app, whatever, that's got credibility. This has tremendous credibility. There is nothing better you can be doing in your life day to day or on a Wednesday evening or a Sunday morning than saying, you know what? Here's one thing I do, though. This is not fake news. This is not going to change. It's not going to be wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Wear two masks. Actually, wear four masks. Wear six masks. None of that stuff. It is written, and what God has spoken, God continues to speak through. His word is eternal. It's settled in the heavens. And Jesus came and fulfilled the word of God to basically just further validate to us the reality of God's reliability, that we can trust what God says, and we can rely upon that. And, and I don't know about you. That gives me tremendous encouragement to my soul. Because who doesn't get frustrated and disheartened by the constant lack of credibility in what everybody says? But you don't ever have to worry about that with the word of God. You don't ever have to worry about that with Jesus. You can continue to serve him because he has done this on your behalf out of love for you. 
and you don't ever have to be concerned about any of those other type of things changing on you in the same way you can have full credibility that as David's going to tell us in Psalm 23, and here's the good news, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and again, we're going to look at this next time, but, but David doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd. He says, here's what I know. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. And so I won't want, I won't lack for anything because I have a good shepherd who takes care of me. And he's not like these other worldly shepherds who's going to bend me. No, no, no. He will lead me through the green pastures and lead me by still waters and he'll restore my soul and lead me in paths of righteousness. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear anything because my good shepherd is with me and his rod and his staff will comfort me. And and even when it looks like I'm in the middle of a valley, I can know, hey, I'm in a valley, but guess what? Who led you in the valley? The shepherd. (laughs) So the same credible shepherd that led you into the valley is going to lead you through the valley. And he's going to lead you out the other side of the valley. And he's not going to abandon you in the valley. And in fact, even if a bunch of enemy marauders come and try and attack you in the dark valley that you're already terrified of, the reality says, no, but you'll set a table for me right in the presence of my enemies. Right there, you'll just take care of me and provide for me and do whatever's necessary. And you'll anoint my head with oil. And even instead of letting me run dry, you'll make my cup overflow. And David says, and and the best part about it is he says, here's what I find. That goodness and mercy, it just keeps following me all the days of my life. It's just like God's goodness just keeps chasing me down. And he says, if that weren't the best part, then I get to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life forever. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why do we get to have God's goodness and mercy now? And then why do we get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Because what Jesus did with Psalm 22, he fulfilled it perfectly so that all of your most crucial problems are resolved and that one day you can get out of the struggles of this sin-cursed and fallen world and you can experience being with the one who, Psalm 22, has done this. But he did it for you out of his love for you and his faithfulness to provide those things for you. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray. Read ahead Psalm 23, that famous psalm. We'll begin to work our way through that next time. Great psalm.